0: On April 8th, 1945, Dietrich Von Hoeffer, a man that some of you may be familiar with in hearing his life story or uh, reading about him, was executed in a Nazi prison camp about two years after being arrested for conspiring to assassinate Adolf Hitler, and just days before he would have been released due to the end of what was considered to be, at that point, the war, with all of those who would have been released with him. A prison doctor at his prison camp said these words after watching Bonhoeffer be hanged. Through the half-open door in one of the rooms in the huts, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer, before taking off his prison garb, kneeling on the floor, praying fervently to his God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. The place of execution, he again said a prayer and climbed the steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued in a few seconds. In the almost 50 years that I have worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. And these were among the last words of Bonhoeffer. This is for me the end, the beginning of life. I don't know that we often consider our walks with the Lord relationally enough that this is not our real home. Think if we have a job change or we transition from state to state, county to county, possibly country to country, we think of there's an ending chapter in my life in this moment and there's a beginning chapter. Get new jobs or move to a new neighborhood, we think of the same our relational relationship, relational lines are going to change, they're going to be altered. It's the end of something that was, it's the beginning of something that's new, but spiritually that is true for us as well. There are actually two different death to life experiences that take place for those who are followers of Jesus. The first of course comes at salvation. The Bible tells us that when we surrender our lives to Jesus, our old lives are dead, buried, and gone. We have new life in Christ, so it's a transition of one to another. The second of that for us, unless Christ returns in our lifetime, is the transition of death from this planet to life in eternity in heaven with him if we've surrendered our lives. And so we can see how Bonhoeffer in this moment living out his faith to the very end, causing his life to be taken, his stand for Christ, his being a pastor in this Nazi Germany, this position he was, holding true to the faith, being faithful to the very last moment in spite of, which should provide for us, encouragement, transitioning from the life he had lived to life eternal with the Father. Now, we may not experience the same type of life that Bonhoeffer did. Many, if not all of us, may never be imprisoned. Many, if not all of us, uh, may never have the call for our lives to come into account for the sake of the gospel, as was his, as have been martyrs, the past 2,000 years in following Jesus. We may never be called to a life of martyrdom where our life is actually called into account and taken for the sake of the gospel. But we can understand some of what Bonhoeffer experienced as he walked through, encountered for the sake of the gospel storms that took place in his life. We too encounter and experience Storms, physically, emotionally, spiritually, relationally, every aspect of our lives, at times we experience storms. And in the midst of those, in the midst of this storm that Timothy was experiencing, Paul was continuing this theme of encouragement to this young pastor, trying to help his feet to continue to be on settled ground, keeping his focus where. It should be on the Lord in the midst of, in spite of. And so I believe today's verses that we're going to look at are both going to bring great encouragement and challenge to our lives and hearts as we walk through these verses together. But before we start, let's pray together. Father, this morning we have already communed with you and with one another by breaking bread drinking juice at the same picture of being at the same table together, fellowshipping with one another as we celebrate you. We are also communing this morning with you, remembering your great sacrifice for us and remembering the great day that is coming when you do call us home. God, we have also experienced together worship, worshiping you, our great God, individually and together. And now as we break open your word, I pray that you would challenge our hearts, our minds, that you would continue to work in us, showing us once again. Truths. Help us in these moments in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's read together 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound, another version, chained. Therefore, I will endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So three things we're going to look at this morning to remain faithful. Knowing that Jesus is alive. Knowing that the gospel is worth it. And finally, knowing that God is good. First, knowing that Jesus is alive. Paul was reminding Timothy in the beginning of verse 8, as he had been doing throughout the entire first chapter in the beginning of this one, to remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. A couple of reasons he was reminding Timothy of that fact. We know, obviously, from what was written previously, that Timothy was struggling. Struggling with his confidence, struggling with his calling, struggling and becoming timid, not readily sharing the gospel, and there were a lot of reasons for that a couple being one all of the disruption the distraction the challenges that he was receiving from outside of the church from those who were enemies of the gospel enemies of paul enemies of timothy he was receiving all of that criticism the complaint coming against from the outside of the church and so it produced some discouragement in timothy he was also receiving the same from inside of the church we see in this book, there were factions uh, those who were opposed to his message, opposed to Paul's message, those who had disrupted the faith for Paul, disrupted the faith for Timothy, at least attempted to disrupt by producing distraction for them and actually coming against them. Some abandoning the faith, some staying with the faith just for whatever reason, they became opposed. To these two men and began to stir up trouble. So Timothy, swirling in that, had not forgotten that he followed Jesus, who was alive, who was resurrected from the dead, but also Paul was pointing to, which we may not see in the language, the day that was coming. Eternity for Timothy, reminding him when he read this that this earth was not his home, this was not his final resting place. A better time a better life for him was coming and would be found as he surrendered his life to Jesus in heaven. So Paul, wrapping up this period of time where he wrote encouragement directly to Timothy, was bringing that to a close, bringing that portion of the letter to an end by reminding him that not only was Jesus alive and that he was found in Christ, being alive himself but that eternity awaited. And to help his eyes and his mind and his heart be realigned and refocused. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Reminding him to fix his eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of his faith. Timothy needed that encouragement. So as we continue reading through this verse 8, the second portion of that. The offspring of David is preached in my gospel. For which I am suffering, bound with change as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So he continues his writing here, reminding Timothy of the great suffering that he was personally experiencing, and reminding Timothy that he too knew that, Paul did, that Timothy was struggling, that he was suffering, that he needed to expect it. And in the midst of that, knowing that Jesus was alive, he was reminding him, the gospel is worth it. A lot of times we communicate, and we talked about this a little bit last week, that uh, the gospel produces this free ease of life and, and how our lives will become better, almost Jesus as an attachment, instead of Jesus as our center, as our focus, as our number one. The gospel is presented all over our world in contradiction to that, saying that if you do this, you will have this. If you, in your life, will say, give whatever it is amount of money, and we've seen it from guys who are TV preachers, if you give this amount of money, you will be healed, you will never have a problem again, and you're going to experience great things in this life. Well, that wasn't the message of Jesus, And it wasn't what Paul was telling Timothy. In fact, it's the opposite. We are promised suffering. And so people who are receiving that message that we are going to live a life of ease where we're never going to experience difficulty are not being true to the gospel. And they're actually deceiving people who are out there believing that. And then when, not if, the storms of life come. And we've all experienced and encountered storms of life, haven't we? That when those storms of life come, questions begin. Now, I thought it was going to be this way. That person, that individual told me that I was going to experience this. But now I've got this. And this swirling of the drain begins. Unsettled feet, unsettled ground. And as the picture that we see in the Gospels, that individual begins to realize... I have built my house on the sand. If we build a home on sand, what happens? The rains come, the Bible tells us, and we know the reality of it, that home is going to crumble. And so for individuals who have bought into this, and I'm just going to call it what it is, this lie that we are promised a life of ease, their lives crumble, and then they wonder, where in the world is God in the midst of this? Instead, we are called to build our homes upon the rock of Christ Jesus. So when those rains come, what takes place with the home that's built on the rock? It remains standing, secure, firm, opposite pictures. So Paul was reminding Timothy, you are to be faithful in this call that God has given you to pastor this group of people in spite of what's happening around you and you're you're called to be faithful to the Lord. We have all in our lives, possibly even this week, possibly even today, struggled with storms that have come. Why did my family member die? I prayed, God, that he or she wouldn't. Why did that happen? Any time a child dies before a parent, it is an absolute tragedy. So in those moments, God, this question comes up. I don't understand it. Why? And if our homes are built on the sand, our relationship with the Lord is affected negatively, negatively. And at times we can blame God, be angry towards God for periods of time. Now, he's big enough. He can take it. He knows we go through seasons, and he loves us in spite of. But there are things in this life that happen that we just flat out don't understand. And until we see him face to face, never will. Honestly, in that moment, and I've said it, I look forward to asking God these certain questions. But honestly, when we're in the presence of God... None of those questions are even going to matter. So we have to ask ourselves, with this week, with the storms we've encountered, how have we, in the midst of those, allowed those things to affect us? Relationally with him, relationally with people. There are moments in the last week when probably all of us have displayed faithless instead of faithfulness we are all works in progress and whether it comes from acting out living in sin engaging in sin becoming involved in things that we shouldn't or basically just choosing our own way the kings and queens of our own lives not allowing Christ to hold that position we have displayed in some respects faithlessness so what does the enemy do with that? What does he want for our lives? John 10.10. If you have not memorized this verse, I challenge and encourage you, memorize it. The thief comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. His very mission for us is to eliminate us from this planet, to so destroy us that we can't encounter God in a day-by-day moment, and that our lives are so disrupted with followers of Jesus and those who are not, our responsibility, our call of holding out the gospel, that our lives are so discouraged, distraught, destroyed, that we are of no consequence or weight for things of the kingdom. And let's be honest. In some of our lives, even today, the enemy is winning. He has gotten a foothold at some point And he is having victory, gaining victory. And in the midst of it, he is calling out to you and saying, you are condemned. Don't even try anymore. This God you've talked about, as he did with Adam and Eve in the garden, eh, there's some characteristics of him that say this, but I say this, and then we take it one step further, just like Adam and Eve did. He is wanting to condemn and ruin and destroy our very lives. But at the end of that verse, Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Polar opposites. Guilt, condemnation are from the enemy. Conviction of sin and the opportunity for repentance, forgiveness, and restoration are from God. And oftentimes in the midst of that, we forget it. That's one of the reasons I love having Sundays where we have communion. You may like It every week, maybe you like it every quarter, every year, whatever the routine is for you. We all have our own opinions as far as how often or how not often we should take it. But I love it because it gives us the opportunity in an unusual way to commune with the Father and to identify our lives, where we are with him, and if there's any unrepentant sin towards him, towards others, gives us the unique opportunity in those moments to ask forgiveness, to repent, to allow him to clean us and restore us so we can once again, in right ways, commune with him and with one another. Communion. Some of you, in that moment that we had when Jeff led us, did just that. There was either sin that you knew was in your life or maybe sin that you didn't, and the Holy Spirit began to convict In the midst of that, you asked forgiveness, you repented, and he restored you and made you right. And we hold on to 1 John 1, 9, which I quote all the time. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and to forgive us our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness. He does that work in our lives, unlike anyone else ever could. And so instead of being buried, living in the past with all this baggage that we hold on to, He is calling us to a renewed and a restored life with Him. He wants that from our very lives because He wants us to experience Him in ways that only He can provide relationally to us, that we may have life. Jesus is alive. We follow an alive God. Every other person that claimed to be God who walked across this this planet isn't, wasn't. What's one of the key ways we know that? Because none of them rose from the dead. Our God is alive. He rose from the dead. And so not only is he alive, but when we surrender our lives to him, we are too. And that life doesn't end. No one can snatch them out of my father's hands. So when we surrender our lives to him, we are eternally set relationally with him. And we can take advantage of that. And feel like we can live any way we want to. Instead of being yielded to the Holy Spirit, being obedient to the steps he calls us to. I'm not saying in this writing from Paul to Timothy, he was calling out Timothy for his sin. Obviously, that was not what he was doing. He was trying to encourage him, but he was telling him, listen, suffering is coming. And even though I know I'm going to lose my life, and you probably will too, Timothy, the gospel is worth it. The one who gave his life for us, it is the least we can do to give our lives and live it out for him. So if you are here and you have surrendered your life to Jesus, The bare minimum of us is to yield ourselves to him, following him with fervor, with our all. He is the only one knowing my name, person to person, who has died for me. And maybe you're fortunate enough to have someone who's done that for you, whom you know their name other than Jesus. That's never been called into account for me from another individual, but for Jesus. So I owe him everything, everything. And in the midst of that, I understand that I fail and I sin and I struggle. Sometimes, just full transparency, when the storms come, even though I know the truth is different, I feel like I'm on shifting sand. And I struggle and I allow the enemy to get a foothold and I feel defeated. Happened to you? How recent. Instead of allowing the restoration of Christ, the power of God to flow through us and in us, keeping our fixed eyes on him. We all struggle. But we have to remember in the midst of that, in the storms, that Jesus promised, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. He is with us, even if we don't feel his presence. That is the truth of God's word. And he has placed intentionally the people with whom you are sitting next to today in your life to provide encouragement. As Paul was encouraging Timothy, the last time you went through a deep struggle, did you share with anyone else? You already know the faithfulness of God to you is real. Did you open your mouth and your heart and your life to someone else and allow them to come alongside and encourage you? If you didn't, you have missed a key Part of our lives. He desires that we do that, that we express our hearts to those we can trust and allow them to come alongside us to provide great encouragement and to ask the questions, how are you doing with the Lord? Not just to say, I'm going to pray for you and walk away and the next week, see one another. Oh no, that's the first thing that hits our brains. You asked me to pray for your whoever it was or for you and failed. That's why I text myself messages, write things down, on paper because if I don't I'll forget it and that's one of the reasons if I'm thinking about it enough if I'm walking in the spirit enough I'll pray with the person right there because I don't want to forget we're forgetful people we've all done that as well God calls us to come alongside one another he also calls us to get our eyes out of the mirror consider this morning how much time did you spend in front of the mirror guys more than ladies obviously because you look good today guys just kidding ladies you look fantastic as well We get so focused in looking at the mirror on our own lives that we forget to do what? See everybody around us. And instead of bridging conversations that we normally have with people about sports or movies or life or work or family, instead of bridging it at the end with an opportunity for scriptural encouragement, we let it sit. What would take place this week? If we intentionally tried to turn every conversation at the end to this, how can I pray for you? I just want to give you some encouragement. Whether it's a verse or something about their life that you appreciate, what would happen to the individuals you have contact with, as do I? What would happen if we spoke words of life and encouragement and offered prayer and actually followed up and prayed for them? and then checked on him next week. I've been praying for you this, about this. How's it going? What would happen in that individual's life? It would be Paul to Timothy. Encouragement. Finally, we need to see that in the midst of the storms, to be faithful, we have to remember that God is good in spite of. He is good. It's his character. Even though at times it may not feel that way. He is verses eleven through thirteen. The saying is trustworthy. For if we've died with him, we also live with him. We've talked about that. We live with him now. We will live with him in eternity if we endure, if we stay faithful. If we surrender our lives to him, we are his. We will reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. Now there are a couple of different takes and commentaries on this. The first, for those who deny Christ, who would go that direction, were never saved in the first place. The others, commentators, would say if we deny him and our followers of Jesus in those moments where we would experience the power and the presence of God, it would not be there in the same way. And so in essence, in our sharing, our lives would picture something different. Verse 13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. So even in those moments this week, yesterday, today, when we were faithless, when we blew it, when we sinned, when we missed opportunities, whatever it looks like, he remained faithful to himself and to us based on the blood of Jesus covering our lives. That should produce in us, as it did in Timothy, great encouragement. In studying for this message, we found this quote, the human faithlessness only serves to decorate the faithfulness of God. Paul was asserting that despite human unfaithfulness, God's saving power has not retreated. So, what are we saying? The more faithless we are, the more God shines? Actually, Romans 6 1 and 2 tell us absolutely differently. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase, so that God can be bigger? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? So there's our challenge. We're not to sin more to make God look bigger. We're to draw closer to Him where He weeds out the things in our lives where it's more of Him and less of us. Remembering these things then will help us be safeguarded against being shipwrecked in our lives. One more section of verses Psalm 107, 23 to 32 which I believe encapsulates a lot of what we've talked about. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men who were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still. Think of Mark 6. His intentionally saying, let's go disciples, put the boat out. Knowing the storm was coming. Giving him the opportunity at the end of that to still it. And for them to realize, my goodness, Jesus is the son of God. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet. And he brought them to the desired haven Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, and he has that steadfast love for you and for me, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people, what we're doing this morning, and praise him in the assembly of the elders. God is good. We will have storms. His love endures forever. He loves you. This passage in the message, 2 Timothy 2, 8 through 13. Fix this picture firmly in your mind. Jesus descended from the line of David, raised from the dead. In what you've heard from me all along, it's what I'm sitting in jail for right now. But God's word isn't in jail. That's why I stick it out here so that everyone God calls We'll get in on the salvation of Christ in all its glory. This is a sure thing. If we die with him, we'll live with him. If we stick it out with him, we'll rule with him. If we turn our backs on him, he'll turn his back on us. If we give up on him, he does not give up. For there is no way he can be false to himself. God is good. He is alive. The gospel is worth it. Let's pray.